Viking believes that a journey on the rivers of the world can be an experience designed for the thinking person. Viking, exploring the world in comfort. Learn more at viking.com. Learn how to plan, invest, and live smarter with the Raymond James For What It's Worth podcast. Featuring insights from leading professionals, you'll get the latest in wealth management, market commentary, and engaging research. Listen today at RaymondJames.com slash podcast. I'm Jace Lacob, and you're listening to Masterpiece Studio. If you're a regular listener to this podcast and a regular watcher of Masterpiece Mystery, we think you'd know by now not to trust Grantchester head writer Daisy Coulomb. We had an emergency call from this property. I didn't call. Your husband home? He came home early from work. He cut his hand on a letter opener, damn fool. He's resting. Why don't we speak with him? Much like the would-be suspects in her long-running mystery series, Coulomb is full of secrets. Did you love your husband? For the most part. That's an odd answer. Have you been married? No. It's not odd if you've been married. And Coulomb knows exactly what big crises await our friends Will and Jordy in the later half of this season, but she keeps them all quiet, per usual. Do you ever feel elated one minute and then guilty the very next? All the time, I'm a mother. Do you love her, do you think? Do you know, I think I do. I haven't even told her yet. I'm not sure I've ever been in love. You were married. I thought I was. That's what you do when you're 18, isn't it? You think you're in love. Never told anyone that either. Fortunately, Coulomb is a good sport and agreed to return to our podcast for another careful conversation about our favorite Grantchester gang. And we are joined once again this week by Grantchester writer and executive producer Daisy Coulomb. Welcome. Thank you. How many times is this? <laughs> oh God, I don't know. I've I've lost count. Yeah, I don't That's know. That's a good sign. I think uh, it is. It is. I mean, Daisy series seven. Hey. Can you believe it? I mean, when you first developed Grantchester, did you ever imagine that it would hit seven series? I never, 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 never. I remember getting to the end of series one and thinking, well, if that's it, then, you know, <laughs> that was a good go. <laughs> um, and then I think actually after every series, we kind of went, oh, well, you know, we had a good run. <laughs> and then we just kept going. Um, yeah, seven. Seven sounds good, doesn't it? It's a good number. It's a lucky number. Good number. It is a lucky number. And also, I don't know, it just it feels like we've managed to, in story terms, almost cover a decade, which feels... Quite interesting, really. Mm. You have covered the breadth of the the 1950s here. Uh, yeah. Things seem like they are changing, uh, especially this series, uh, in a number of ways, which we'll talk about. Yeah. Uh, I, I do want to ask, Grantchester combines both mystery and morality plots. It, it blends together procedural crime elements with serialized character arcs in a way that few other shows really pull off as effectively. Killed by a child's toy. It would be funny if it wasn't so bloody tragic. Bank statement for your husband's business. My business. It's in your husband's name. He liked to control our finances. 
Do you feel that this this combination of character forward drama and murder mystery plotting contributed to the longevity of the show? I think so. I think it's really, I was talking to my mum about it the other day and she said, oh, I do love Grantchester, but I don't watch it for the murder. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's, I mean, that's <laughs> half of it, but fine. But I think I think you could come to it as a character show or you could come to it as a crime show. And because it's wrapped up in an hour, you get a satisfying hour of, you know, of a, of a murder and a resolution. But you also, I, I mean, I think it's no secret really that the character stuff is my favourite bit. But, but I think you can take what you want from it, really. You can, and, and you can get satisfaction from two elements. No, it is a sort of choose your own adventure aspect to this show that you can, as you say, sort of come for the characters or you can come for the murder or you can come for both. Yeah. Um, and either way, you're sort of getting, or, this, or the beautiful scenery. Yeah. I mean, you're getting all of those sort of served uh, in a single episode. Yeah. Uh, the world has changed a little bit since you shot series six of Grantchester at the very height of lockdown. Yeah. Even with many of those COVID safety protocols still in place, did making series seven feel different to its predecessor? It did. I mean, we were still, season seven was still COVID-y in the sense that everyone tested and you could, you had to wear masks and it was all very controlled. Um, but somehow, and the series reflects this, there was hope and there was a sense of we're coming out of this, we're, we're moving on. It's, it's so weird now. I find it really weird that we talk to each other in the depths of lockdown and it felt like there was going to be no end. And now I think weirdly, there's this sort of feeling of, did that really happen? But it, for us, season seven had had a lightness about it and had had a joy about it, not least because I got, you know, we got to go to set and see and hang out. And, you know, we had a few drinks because we in England, the lockdown meant you could meet outdoors again. Um, so there was a sort of relaxing and, and you kind of get that in the storylines and the and the show, really, I think. Uh, less prison, more uh, outdoor celebration. Exactly. I mean, maybe. it's. Yeah. I mean, you'd almost think it was a metaphor. If I don't think we were that clever, but <laughs> when you look at it, you're like, you can see it. <laughs> yeah. There's been a lot of change since we saw the Grantchester folks at the end of series six. Jordy has moved in with Will at the vicarage after Kath kicked him out at the end of series six. Yeah. Leonard and Daniel have set up a cafe. Given these changes, what sort of discussions were there in the writer's room about reconfiguring? Series six fractured a lot of things, like Leonard lost his job and Geordie lost Kathy. And Will was still in sort of this sort of hinterland of being a man-child. <laughs> and um, I think what we wanted to do was we knew that this was the season where things, it's a sort of coming back together and an acceptance of change and for us, this season was all about love and how how you recognise true love, how you rekindle love that you've lost, how, I mean, every story, how you protect you love. I did everything, everything seemed to come back to that again, probably reflect, reflecting our, um, our new sort of optimistic state <laughs> of mind. Which is, I mean... I do feel like it it does reflect that the the to there is a tonal shift between these two series that is very clear to me. Yeah. Uh, and I think especially becomes clear by the end no spoiler. Um, <laughs> the the series has gone through many transformations over the years but at its heart was always a found family. Yes. The vicarage to me sort of provided a, a nexus space for the characters to pass through. 
But with Leonard defrocked in season six, was there a conscious effort to, how, how can I say this, just sort of find a replacement space that would allow for that connective tissue? Well, I think because it is, it's about, um, in, in a way, Geordie and Will's friendship has created this family and and in the vicarage, you know, it's created the vicarage family, but obviously now it's extended into this cafe, which is a safe place for others. Um, and it and it's allowed Leonard to become himself. And I think that's what we always wanted to do, really, was show a family of sort of misfits, I suppose, in a weird way. They are a family of misfits who are allowed to become themselves in that in their in in that with the comfort of that family you know Leonard is is starting to I feel like he's starting to blossom in this series he's starting to wear turtlenecks and uh, and sort of become himself in in a way that he never has before where did the idea for Leonard's newly secular path in life come from how did you end up settling on the cherry orchard cafe well Leonard's journey is not going to be an easy one from because you know the church was his vocation it was it was his meaning and his purpose. We wanted to show that this transition to being his new self was not going to be easy. And, and he's doing something great. The cafe is great. And it's a, it's a place for, you know, terrible poetry and, <laughs> and uh, hot cross buns. And, but is it really, in the end, will it, will it satisfy him enough? He needs something with a bit more gravitas and, and that's really helping people. So that, that's his transition across the series is really realizing what is it he wants to do outside the church that makes him whole. Mm. I mean, the cafe too, it, it does showcase the the changing culture of 1959 as much as the jazz clubs that Will visits. I mean, as you say, the sort of bad beatnik poetry, there are black turtlenecks. Uh, do locations <laughs> like the Cherry Orchard or Swinnerton's afford you that ability to explore the, the social or cultural shifts that are happening in the background of the series? Yeah, and it just gives you a bit of, of colour and texture, I think, those those sort of sets. I mean, I miss Swinnerton's, actually. I really enjoyed that set. Um, but as soon as they get built, they get knocked down as soon as as <laughs> as soon as, uh, as soon as that story's over. And you just think, no. Um, but yeah, I, I did really enjoy the cafe, actually, because, well, it, it was Leonard's domain and anything that's to do with Leonard, I'm, I'm quite happy to hang in his world, even if it isn't quite what he wants to do. Um, and his lovely, I love, in episode one, his... Um, his welcoming poem to the uh, <laughs> to the crowds about the uh, the cherry orchard, the tree growing, and yeah, you, you just get to have some fun, really. I mean, you you mentioned love. Uh, this season definitely explores the notion of love. It also looks at things like truth and the weight of secrets and lies, both the the lies we tell others and the ones we tell ourselves, perhaps mm-hmm. even more damagingly. I mean, what were your intentions with the the overarching thematic narrative here? In, in the broadest context, what does series seven say? Well, for for example, Mrs. C's story, I think it w- was one of the first stories we came up with. It was it was sort of a story about about the darkest time in your life, the people around you will help you through it. The people around you are the ones you lean on. And sometimes holding those secrets doesn't help you. Holding those secrets keeps you from others when when you need to ask for help. And in her story, she needs to ask for help. And when she does, from Leonard, you just, the love becomes stronger, I think, because the vulnerability, she allows herself to be vulnerable. And that was and that was our sort of starting point for the whole series was this, we knew Mrs C's story was going to sort of pull it all together. Mrs C, are you... 
and I can't believe these words are about to pass my lips. Having an affair. Is this, in fact, your love nest? You're a very silly boy sometimes. Who is he, then? He's my doctor. I'm Paulie. I've been Paulie for a while now, and... I'm frightened, Leonard. I'm ever so frightened. And everyone's story is about Geordie has to learn to be vulnerable and truthful. Um, Will, similarly, it's about being truthful and you're kind of owning your, this is, that's a very modern way of putting it, but owning your feelings and 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 speaking your truth. <laughs> I, I won't put that dialogue in Grantchester. I don't think that would work, but yeah. <laughs> Before this next question, a brief word from our sponsors. The Great Lakes, the Arctic and Antarctica, iconic destinations around the world. Viking offers opportunities for discovery with a shore excursion in every port. Learn more at viking.com. Coming up next on Masterpiece on PBS, the premiere of Nolly begins March 17th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, followed by the premiere of Alice and Jack at 10 p.m. Eastern, 9 p.m. Central. Will meets Maya, Alora Tortilla, yes. at a jazz club and quickly falls into bed with her, only to learn that not only is she engaged, but her fiancé is Jordy's new boss, DCI Elliot Wallace. How does Maya test Will's resolve, and, and how does he truly feel about her knowing what he does? Again, that was another theme of the series, was this, this sort of pull between... She represents modernity, really. She represents the modern woman and adventure and travel and excitement and all the things the new world is promising. Leave him. Well. Let me imagine, just for a moment. And go off on the bike, wherever we want. I've always wanted to go to Rome. And we can drink wine, dance under the olive trees. You have to learn how to dance first. <laughs> Maybe we'll get married out there. I have kids. I think I prefer the dancing and the olive trees. Maya is the promise of a different kind of future, a sort of restless, reckless future. And Will's chasing that, but is that the right thing to be chasing? Is, is that what he really wants? And then that's when Bonnie comes onto the scene. We'll talk about Bonnie in a minute. Yeah. Uh, Grantchester has excelled at being inclusive in terms of its storytelling and behind the camera, which is a rarity for period dramas. In many shows, Maya would have been played by an Anglo actress. Did you specifically write her as being Southeast Asian or was it more a matter of meeting Alora? Um, It was, we actually, for for once we did it deliberately actually, because we thought there was something interesting. I, I was interested in the idea of a girl who, who from a very wealthy background, who had been sent over to boarding school and had this very um, sort of free, freeing upbringing that she'd she'd sort of grown up alone really, but had so had had her independence, wasn't tied down to anyone, um, and was quite grown up, more grown up than Will is. And then, so we started from that basis because I've met a lot of girls like that in my time who 
who just seem so sophisticated because they've been living on their own since they were 10. <laughs> and, um, and yet she's got this very rich family and this, she's just got a gravitas that lots of other girls Will has met haven't. She's, she's, she's sure of who she is in the way that Will isn't. Mm. Her fiancé is the first major authority figure we've seen in seven seasons of Grantchester who wants to keep a vicar from interfering in an active investigation, yeah. uh, scuppering Will and Geordie's crime-solving dynamic. Why is Wallace so against Will's involvement, even without knowing what's going on between him and Maya? He is, again, modernity. He is a, a 1960s copper in the making. He, we, we thought about him as sort of, in the way that Geordie is a very instinctive and crumpled suit, this man is sharp and plays by the rules and, and Will certainly doesn't fit into the rules. <laughs> I mean, he's allowed to do interviews, I'm not sure. That's by the rules. Um, <laughs> but it, we, yeah, he's, he's, he's a stickler for the proper process and Geordie certainly doesn't fit into that and Will definitely doesn't. I'm curious which came first in terms of the plotting, Wallace's identity as Maya's fiance or him being a thorn in the side of Geordie and Will's crime solving? Was, or was it a case of sort of two birds with one stone? It was, it started off, they started off as two separate characters. And um, so Elliot, he started off as their nemesis in the police station. And then we also had him having an affair. And then we were like, well, the good thing about combining the two is that you then realise um, it, Will's affair has an impact on his friend. It makes his life difficult, so it makes it much more knotty. Um, mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that that it, it gave us a new interesting dynamic when we, I think it was in the middle of storylining, we went, oh, what if they're, the, you know, just, just playing around, really? And um, and that, that made it more sort of emotional rather than just a mean policeman and a aggrieved husband. And again, it sort of pulls together those sort of different elements of the show, the crime-solving element and the character element sort of come together, the yeah. emotional and the sort of procedural. Yeah. Uh, which works really effectively here. Uh, episode two opens with Will and Maya falling back into bed together, uh, an adulterous act which is juxtaposed with the domesticity of the Carmichael's advertisement. <laughs> yeah. Uh, was that an intentional contrast, those two elements sort of jutting against each other, the adulterous and the domestic? Yes, this episode for me was all about the faces we give to the world, you know, Miss, the, Mrs. Carmichael and her squeaky clean advert with her beautiful children and the reality, which, you know, they're all at it, basically. In, in 1959, uh, everyone's kind of having affairs and not behaving themselves because they're human, they're not... They're not advert advertisement perfect. They're not, you know, even Mrs. Carmichael, the children in the advert aren't, aren't her children. She's like, you know, they're horrible, horrible little brats, actors. <laughs> um, so it's it's that sort of, that was the, the idea of that episode was to the face of the world and the, uh, the what's happening behind that, the door of that nice cottage in the, the pretty cottage of the uh, nice lady answering the door. <laughs> Uh, this episode also introduces Bonnie Evans, uh, Kath's Yay. niece, who has been enlisted to help Kath with the kids. Bonnie is, of course, played by the always amazing Charlotte Ritchie. Uh, yes. How did Charlotte's casting come about and, and what does she bring to Grantchester? She, my God, we were so happy. Um, we, she'd always been in our mind because she is the perfect. We wanted somebody who was really unaffected and 
fun and you want to hang out with her and you want to be you do you just know that her and will they should you know they will click on a friend level and they make each other laugh and so we put it to her and we thought there's no way because ghosts is such a, a mega I'm sure ghosts you have ghosts over there and it's such a mega hit um and she does so much work and she said yes and she uh, and it was we were so over the moon and she just she brings uh just a lightness and a fun and she's a really good actress and her and Tom um I'm sure you'll ask Tom about this but he they got on so well they were just they, it was like there's a scene in a, a restaurant in episode four where uh where Will does a kind of chef's kiss and she takes the mickey out of him and and I'd written that and we were in a pub in Grantchester in real Grantchester and he did that and she laughed at him and I went you'll never guess but I'd, I've written that in the script it was that they had the same bantery relationship but it's really sweet oh I love that and I love that moment uh there to me there's this sort of puckish quality to Bonnie that I love. She she might be a widow, she's a single mom, but she's she's not cast here as a sort of tragic figure. No. Uh, she has this sort of vitality and wittiness that makes her more than Will's sort of equal. Where did the the notion of Bonnie as a character come from? How did you know that this was the time to introduce her? The notion of Bonnie, we wanted somebody who who wasn't for once wasn't pining after our lead man who was who was Terry his equal who who was vibrant and funny and intelligent and challenged will in ways he'd never been challenged who doesn't believe in god and she and you know on paper bonnie is traditional she's she's a wife she's a mother you know she she's got all the things from the 1950s that a woman should have but yet she's she's the one who's progressive I think she's the one who's who sees beyond her position and is just just fun really we wanted to have her to be fun to she to me gets introduced in the most daisy kula mask way imaginable (laughs) uh she's doing a handstand and she accidentally tucks her skirt into her knickers in front of the vicar oh hello mr davenport i have heard so much about you all good don't worry i'm sorry do i know you I'm Bonnie. Mrs. Bonnie Evans. This is my son, Ernie. How do you do? How do you do? Um. <clears throat> what? Your uh, your skirt still. Oh. Oh. That's <laughs> not what you want to see first thing in the morning. What does this say about Bonnie, and how did you settle on <laughs> this image as her introduction? Well, I suppose I wanted her to be somebody who kids love as well and who who was sort of didn't care what people thought you know she's doing handstands in the garden and she you know it's a bit embarrassing that you've seen her knickers but then she makes a joke about it it's 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 just irreverent I suppose and he's reverent (laughs) or or irreverent um that sort of sense of yeah she 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 brings out something in will we've not seen before I think well, he does open up to her. He he does yeah. manage to open up to her in a way that feels really unguarded uh, when they talk about the sort of big three, uh, sex, love, and shame. And there's this, yeah. this really sort of comfortable, immediately comfortable quality in their rapport that I think surprises both of them. Yeah. How, did, how should viewers read that scene where, where he's showing Bonnie around Cambridge? And, and what was it like sort of writing that scene and getting them so close so quickly? 
it was great and also we, we sat on sets for that to to film it um and so that that scene was used in um what we call a chemistry reading for for Tom to sit with the girls that we sort of brought together to and um it we just didn't even I mean you see him and Charlotte do it and it's it basically what we were trying to say was these people are perfect for each other but they don't know it yet they're, this is their when Harry met Sally moment in the car. You know, they're 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 on it. They're they're going to challenge each other and they're going to be spiky, but they're also just they fit straight away. They're easy with each other. That's what we wanted from that scene. You just want to slap them and tell them to get on with it. Yeah, exactly. Come on, but then it would be a very short series. <laughs> it would be. Uh, much of the crime in this in this episode, as you said, sort of centers around the notion of fantasy. I mean, does that connect at all to Will's desire for Maya? If she does represent the sort of, as you say, sort of travel and modernity, has he constructed a fantasy of who she is and what their romance means that's at odds with reality? Yeah, he talks about um, oh, dancing in, in, let's go to Rome and let's dance in olive, under olive trees. And it's a, it is a, it's a completely, he knows it's impossible on some level. It, it, even at the start, it's sort of doomed from the start, but they can't, despite that, I, he knows that it will never happen. He knows it can't be, which makes Bonnie, in a way, the contrast is that Bonnie can be, <laughs> Bonnie should be, but he just, it, it just, he needs to acknowledge that she's right for him. I mean, he says, I can't, I can't pretend anymore when he decides to walk out on Maya, to reject the illusion or fantasy that they've spun for themselves in this sort of cocoon yeah I mean does he have the realization here that she'll never leave Elliot or that he's in love with her but can never have her or is it just that this dream has been punctured at this point yeah and I think for us Maya was always a character who who won't be defined by her relationship who who probably is could it could happen it could you know they could run off to Rome but but the fact is Will is he's sort of kidding himself that he will do that I think he, he can't commit, as many men <laughs> can't. Um, he, he's, he finds it difficult to sort of, he did this and he can't make that decision. She's, she's like, let's just go then, let's just go. And he can't, he can't bring himself to because he just needs to grow up. We say this every series, just grow up, grow up, Will. <laughs> Realise what you're doing. Um, yeah, so that was what it was about, really. Elsewhere, I love the the burgeoning friendship that kicks off in this episode between Kath and Miss Scott, uh, Jennifer Scott, yes. that is. Uh, yes. How much fun are these two to write together? And can we expect to see more of this pairing this season? Yes, for sure. They, they are, they're just a joy, really, aren't they? And also because we, we felt like Miss Scott was the, uh, the sort of, well, the feminist character in the, in the station. And Kathy's on, been on her own journey of discovery about her her worth and her career. And and it just seemed to fit that those two would become friends, uh, much to Geordie's chagrin. <laughs> they're, they're, they're really sweet. I like them together. And also um, uh, Miss Scott is fast becoming, I say this, actually, I can't say she's one of my favourite characters because they all are, but she's she's fab to write. She really is. Um, yeah, it was fun. On that on that note, one of the overarching themes of this episode is women taking control of their own business, whether mm. that's professional or personal, and their sense of agency. 
as we see the sort of first glimmers of second wave feminism approaching in 1959, yeah. was capturing this nascent sense of female empowerment a goal then for the writers this season? I think so. I think Emma and I, Emma, uh, the exec producer, and I, we're always banging on about, <laughs> you know, this is, I think our goal is always to let the women have their moment to shine. Um, and then John Jackson was back again and lots of other writers. And it was just, it, I, also because it's fast approaching 1960 and which is the most fundamental change in this country, especially, well, in your, in your country as well. Um, things changed so dramatically in that decade and we're just on the cusp of it. We're just there. And things are start. the little glimmers of hope are starting to show and to, to, to show that is good. Uh Leonard and Mrs. C's relationship has had its ups and downs, but there is such an understated beauty in the way that Sylvia doesn't correct the doctor when he assumes Leonard is her son and asks if he'd like to accompany her. What does this small moment mean to both of them? I think in that moment, it means everything really, isn't it? I mean, she, well, it's a, it's a sort of symbol of how far they've come from series three, I think, where she discovered his homosexuality and struggled terribly with it through the court case where she rejected him through, you know, they've been through all these steps along the way. They've they've struggled. And in that moment, she acknowledges that the feelings she really has for him, which is she loves him terribly. Um, oh gosh, you're getting emotional. Um, and I just, I love that moment because it's quite small, but you sort of get it, you get everything. And and also I really liked the way she thanks the doctor at the end of what he tells her. She says, thank you. Like, as I imagine many women in those times did, because, you know, you, a working class woman and a professional man, it's like, you just, I don't, I, I just like those scenes. And I love Leonard and Mrs. C and across this series, actually. Um, they do some nice stuff. I mean, the doctor rather sort of condescendingly delivers this diagnosis without much feeling or sensitivity and drops this bombshell on the two of them before walking out. How how does this storyline continue to play out this season? What can you tease about where it might be going? Well, it, it, it this is one of Mrs. C's dilemmas. How does she, something so fundamentally private and terrifying, how does that how do you share that with people you love? And Leonard is sort of her guide through it, really. And who and they have what, what you wanted to do um, with cancer. So I, I had cancer um, about ten years ago, and um, what what my journey? What my journey? That's such a terrible, terrible modern word. But uh, what I learned through it was that it's not always sad. It's not always. I mean, it is. It's horrible, but it, it, it's also it's still funny, and there's still moments where you laugh and where you have too many glasses of wine and uh, I don't know Mrs C and Leonard go off together to a restaurant in episode four and have quite a sort of <laughs> outrageous time she she Mrs C goes you know we see a different side to her through this journey not just a sad you know reflective maudlin side and I think it's and it gives her a chance to sort of open up about some old wounds as well no, I was going to ask. I mean, you you've been open about your own thyroid cancer uh, journey. I'll use I'll use the journey. But I mean, I hope that your experiences were handled better than than Sylvia's. I mean, did you draw on your own experience to sort of inform Sylvia's story here? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a very different world now because, you know, nowadays they say, we're going to do this, we're going to do this treatment and you will be better. You know, there's no sort of ambiguity, even though in your head you say, you know, you, you fear the worst. And there's sort of, whereas in those days, I think it was much more, well, it was, it was a sort of taboo and, but yeah, kind of something to be feared and ashamed of. Now it's, well, one in two of us will get it. So now, you know, it's 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 open and and it, a really interesting thing to sort of look at. The sort of fear of, it's death, isn't it, really? I suppose that's at the end of the day, it's a fear of death and a fear of your own mortality um, and what that does to you and what that brings out. And she, you know, her struggle with believing in God after some, after a diagnosis like that, how does that affect your relationship with God? So it's all that kind of stuff, interesting things. So a storyline about mortality in a show about morality, God, crime yes. and punishment. Uh, just, that, just that really. Fitting. <laughs> yes. Just that. Uh, finally, what can you what can you tease about what's coming up this season on Grandchester? Oh, what can I tease? Uh, you'll have some happy times. Some things you want to happen will happen. Some other things won't happen. Um, that's very vague. Uh, <laughs> romance, romance. Um, some tears. I hope some bits might make people cry. Um, I'm thinking specifically of Mrs. Chapman and Leonard and some terrible beat poetry. And uh, Mrs. C doing beat poetry, that's what you can look forward to, actually. (laughs) Daisy Coulomb, thank you so very much. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks very much. Will Davenport might be wearing a few different hats this season of Grandchester. Pastor, detective, other man in a complicated love triangle. But so too is Tom Brittany, slipping into the director's chair for the first time next episode. These chaps are detectives. I'm just a hanger-on. Oh, definitely, please. You've got that crumpled, useless look about you. Series lead and debut director Tom Brittany returns to the podcast July 24th. Masterpiece Studio is hosted by me, Jace Lacob, produced by Nick Anderson, and edited by Robin Bissett. Alicia Baitup is our sound designer. The executive producer of Masterpiece is Suzanne Simpson. Sponsors for Masterpiece on PBS are Viking Cruises, Raymond James, and the Masterpiece Trust.